You're listening to a podcast of spurious morality. Welcome to a podcast of Spurious Morality. Uh, we are back doing another season by season, and this time we are on season 13. I can't quite believe that we are now halfway through the classic era uh, in doing this. Uh, it's quite exciting, really. Um, this is a very strong season. Like, this is objectively, you could argue that this is perhaps the best. It's not my favourite, but you could argue that maybe it is the best. It'll be interesting to see what we sort of make of that, though. Uh, with me this week, I am joined by Greg. Hello. And I'm joined by Jimmy. Hi. So, yeah, incredibly good series, season, uh, incredibly strong run of stories, uh, lots of fan favourites in there. We have got some good ones to talk about. However, I teased last time that uh, this this also featured my least favourite classic serial. Uh, so we're going to get to that in a little bit. But first of all, let's let's start with positivity, not negativity. I'm going to ask you guys what your favourite serial from this run is. So, Greg, do you want to go first? Absolutely. My favorite serial from this run is The Seeds of Doom. I think The Seeds of Doom is one of the greatest classic series stories, period. I think it's every bit as good as City of Death or Androzani or Genesis of the Daleks or whatever you want to say. It, it, it's 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 pretty, pretty close to a perfect story. It's a little weird. I'll talk about this later because it seems like the writer didn't really understand what the doctor is supposed to be but it's such an exciting portrayal of the doctor for tom baker that it works in spite of that and um it's just a it's just a fantastic episode it's gripping it has fantastic sound it's it's so good i love it i think uh yeah it, it's it very much is a story that works because tom baker is just so good and versatile as the doctor um, but yeah, it's it's an exceptional serial. It really is. I agree with you. It, it's it's one of the greatest ever. Uh, Jimmy, what's your favourite? Well, I'm um, definitely got to disagree with you two. That was my least favourite of the season, personally. For me, Ooh. the best has to be Pyramids of Mars. Another exceptional story. It is a run of exceptional stories for the most part. Um, you see, I'm, I'm doing that thing again with sort of head and heart. It, it I kind of. It's very difficult to look at this season and not think, yes, Seeds of Doom is is the best. It's got to be. It's, it's just brilliant. However, in terms of 
story that I like, story that entertains me most, I'd actually say Android Invasion. I love it. It's bonkers. It doesn't make a word of sense. It's full of weird moments. It's it's full of Terry Nationisms, but it all comes together quite well. And I think it really does make me wish we'd have gotten more non-Dalek Terry Nation stories because it's just, it's exceptional. It's just so much fun. Bonkers, but fun. Um, so yes, I'm I'm, I'm going to go with Android Invasion, even though if I were to objectively take that step back, it would be Seeds of Doom. Uh, however, the first story in this run is uh, Terror of the Zygons. Uh, it was carried over from season 12 and very much does feel like a season 12 story. It's It sort of has some notable differences to the rest of the season. This is everything from... Uh, Harry still being a companion, uh, the length of Sarah Jane's hair, the Doctor's costume. Um, but it, it's, I'm kind of glad they carried it over because it's an incredibly strong starter. And it's, it means that we get an extra Brigadier story in this season. Or we get a Brigadier story in this season. We wouldn't have done otherwise. Um, and the Zygons themselves are absolutely fantastic villains. Uh, it's considered to be one of the all-time greats. It was sort of deliberately held back when they were releasing the DVDs till pretty much the end of the range, certainly very close to the end of the range, because they wanted to go out on something really strong. Um, and I have to admit, the whole time they were releasing the DVDs, I was sort of thinking, oh, can we just get Terror of the Zygons now? I really want Terror of the Zygons on DVD. Um, so, Greg, what are your thoughts on Terror of the Zygons? I wouldn't go so far as to call Terror of the Zygons one of the absolute classics of the show like I would with Seeds of Doom, but it's a very, very good Doctor Who story. What jumps out at me immediately on watching it is how much more confident and secure the production is now in Season 13. Like Season 12, you could feel they were trying a few things. You know, Tom Baker was getting his performance down. Here, there's none of that. I mean, here they hit the ground running and they deliver what I feel is just like a really solid, strong meat and potatoes, Dr. Who story. Um, it's got a kind of a horror you know, feel to it. There's a little bit of a, a claustrophobic atmosphere and a paranoid atmosphere from who's been being watched. Um, of course, the idea that, you know, the Zygons can look like people, so you don't know who's a Zygon and who's not. It's also, of course, the final story featuring the Brigadier for seven years. And this is, of course, the, the final season until the very last season when we actually get unit stories. And you can, again, still feel the show kind of pulling away from the unit era the doctor has the same dismissive attitude here that he did in robot. He's clearly annoyed that the brigadier called him back to earth. He is clearly uninterested in solving the problem at first, but as he realizes the scope and scale of it, of course he, he becomes involved. It's, it's just a strong, it's a strong episode. I, I really don't have any, any complaints about it. I think the Zygons are a great villain. I think it's kind of surprising that they haven't done a shape-shifting alien story like this up until now and, you know, 13 years after the show started because it's such a, a traditional science fiction idea. Of course, we've had doubles of characters and so on, but 
yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, I guess I don't, I don't have a lot to say about it. Um, but I think it's really good. Uh, yeah, um, I, I know what you mean. Sort of it, meat and potatoes, Doctor Who. I think that's a really good sort of way of putting it. I do think it is sort of slightly above that level. I think it's well above average. I think there's there's stuff that sort of makes it stand out. I think there are more sort of meat and potatoes, you Doctor Who's, as we go on through this season. Um, I definitely put this in the top half of the season. Um, it's it's it is a strong season though. Like the more I think about it, the more I can't believe just how good this run is. Bar that one story I don't like that we'll get to shortly. Um, Jimmy, what do you think? Terror of the Zygons. Yeah, I quite enjoyed this one, and I think it's a great start to the season. Um, as you say, it's nice to see the Brigadier and Benton again. There's sort of bit of a semi last hurrah for units with. Again, Android Invasion later in the season, but, um, yeah, with that starting here. Uh, another thing is a bit of a throwback to the Pertwee era again in that style with the Doctor's speech about oil not being an emergency and that to the Brigadier. And he also does a good job in the scene where he's sort of making fun of the Duke and sort of being anti-authoritarian and anti-monarchic and it sort of comes across as very Pertwee era style. Um, yeah, Fake Harry when he's the Zygon in the barn scene is brilliantly creepy. Um, bit rubbish before that, unfortunately, which is a shame because, um, yeah, it's his last full story and, yeah, but he's usually pretty good there. Um, what else? Uh, oh, yeah, there was also the thing I felt was interesting was the bit where the Doctor hypnotises Sarah to not need to breathe or not feel pain and, like, just having that power is an interesting thing to just randomly throw in there, but... They did a nice tie back with him mentioning about learning from a Tibetan monk and, again, ties back to sort of the last part of Pertwee's era with the whole Planet of the Spiders and Joe Jay thing. So that was certainly interesting. But, yeah, it's got a great atmosphere. And um, the one thing I would fault with it is that they did such a brilliant job of realising the inside of the Zygon ship and having it look so strange and you know, organic. And then the outside of the ship, it's like, yeah, just generic normal spaceship. It's a bit of a pity that they did so well at one part of it, the inside, and then so badly at the other. So that was a bit disappointing. And of course, the Scarrison as well. But um, despite those little faults, I think, yeah, it's a brilliant story and a brilliant start to the season. So yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a shame that they've they've done that classic sort of Doctor Who thing. I think this is something we see quite a lot moving forward now, actually, where we've got a really good, really strong story, which 99% of looks fantastic. And then there's the Scarrison that just kind of drags the whole production down. Um, and we get this in so many great stories going forward. We get the Rat in Talons. We get the Magma Beast in Caves of Androzani. Uh, the Shrivenzal in Reboss operation. That the, there's loads of this going forward. Just you sort of think, oh, if that one thing doesn't there, this wasn't there. This this could be a very, 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 very sort of strong story. Um, you know, it's Doctor Who. We we accept the iffy effects and that kind of thing. It's part of the deal. But yeah, the Scarrison is particularly poorly realised. Um, as you said, though, Jimmy, that's offset by the interior design of the 
Zygon spaceship just been so good. It's it's some of the best looking design we've had up until this point. And actually, that's that's kind of a running theme for this season. There's some really good design. There's some stuff that looks absolutely brilliant. Um, which actually brings us on quite nicely to our next story, which is Planet of Evil. Um, Planet of Evil does look absolutely brilliant. That 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 set, that planet, it looks amazing. It's perhaps the most successful realisation of an alien world in classic Doctor Who. Unfortunately, I can't stand the rest of it. This is definitely my least favourite classic story, and I don't know why, really. It's just, it's a real clunker in the middle of so many strong stories. I mean, seasons... 11 12 13 14 are near enough flawless there's there's the odd death to the daleks and there's the odd planet of evil but for all intents and purposes we are in a really 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 good period of doctor who here and planet of evil just it feels like nothing happens the the, the science feels all over the place it's just it, it, it's a gloomy story, it's really downbeat, and there's no real kind of direction to that, there's no particular reason for that, just there's a monster here that's killing people, well that's every Doctor Who story. Um, the spaceship where a good chunk of the story takes place looks absolutely dreadful, um, it, it's a really sort of poorly designed set, um, and yeah, there's just it, it doesn't feel like an awful lot happens in this one, and it's just never been one that's really clicked with me uh, in the way that everything else in this season does. So I'm hoping that to sort of balance out my negativity, you guys have something a bit more positive to say about it. Um, I've, I've found that I've not really bumped into anybody who dislikes this story as much as I do, and fair enough. Um, so, Greg, what do you think, Planet of Evil? Well, you mentioned at the top of the episode that season 13 is one of the strongest in the classic series. And in general, I agree with you, but I can never rank it as one of the best because it has Planet of Evil in it. I don't like this story either. I don't think it's particularly good. Um, like you said, the the jungle, the alien jungle design is fantastic. Like, they've rarely done anything that looks that convincing even you know Pertwee running around in the metabolus jungle for a few seconds while people off camera are hitting him with branches doesn't look this good it's it's really good and i think there's the potential of a decent story in here if you can focus more on the specific threat on the on the constant threat that everyone's under if you just made it scarier but you'd also need to introduce some kind of additional plot element because just nothing really happens in this story it's 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 interesting because you know it starts with with a one expedition that's wiped out and then another expedition comes to investigate that one and then that expedition is slowly almost wiped out and you'd think you'd have this, like, again, this kind of frightening, ongoing, like, who's it, who's going to be next sort of thing. But it just feels so limp. It just has no urgency to it. It, it, it really just feels like P1 
people wandering around on some sets. The 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 idea of the the, the antimatter monster, if you will, is interesting at least, and I like that they take that like red outline of a creature and key it in over the over the shots, and and that's at least an attempt to make something look you know kind of sci-fi and cool, even if it doesn't entirely work. But then by the end of the story, you just end up with a guy in a monster mask going, Rrr! and it's just it just feels so cheap in that sense. I don't know. I'm not a big fan of this one at all. I think it's a story where, despite the fact that it's only the Doctor and Sarah, Sarah doesn't really have a lot to do, and she spends a lot of time just standing on the ship, like looking over people's shoulders at screens and and, and being afraid that the Doctor is dead, which becomes kind of a running gag in this season and even gets flagged up later. Tom Baker's always great but he really just doesn't have anything to play off of here there's a lot of just like acting to the air there's the whole weird cliffhanger where he just falls into the pit i i don't i really don't understand what they were going for here and to make matters worse even though it's a four-part story and usually those are at least over relatively quickly it feels like a a seven or an eight-parter it is so slow i I I would like to have balanced you out with some positivity, but I really don't like this one at all. It's one of my probably one of my two least favorite of the Tom Baker era. It, it yeah, you're absolutely right. It it just it drags. It feels slow. It, it's we've had some sort of really good action packed, pacey four parters, and yeah, there's been a bit of padding in there. You know, there's there's the boat stuff in Revenge of the Cybermen. You know, Genesis has its fair share of padding, and let's face it, the Sontaran experiment is just two episodes of padding. But it's this feels slower. This feels like there's there's just nothing happening. It's a lot of people arguing, and from my point of view, it's a very black and white argument. Get rid of the stuff that's causing the problem, and that's it. There's no problem, and it's. You know, there's kind of something about greed in there, whether it be material or scientific or whatever. And it just it isn't touched upon. It's just people just seem to be stupid for the sake of being stupid and they all get killed because of it. Um, Jimmy, have you got anything more positive to say about this one? Yeah, look, I can see why you both don't like it. But for me, it's it's definitely nothing brilliant. But I'd say it's, you know, above average. It's pretty good. Um, I think it falls apart a bit when Sorensen transforms into the sort of monster version and they get the duplicates of him. But before that, I think it's pretty well realised. I mean, obviously, as you've already said, there's the realisation of the planet, which is brilliant. And another thing I'd point out that was pretty good was it's a bit of a generic-looking TARDIS interior, but it's nice to have the TARDIS interior back. The last time we see the inside of the TARDIS before this is halfway through Pertwee's last season in Death to the Daleks. So it's just nice to have it back. Um, yeah, yeah, I think the Jekyll and Hyde ripoff with Sorensen is what makes this fall apart. Before that, when it's, you know, the mysterious antimatter creatures and the planet wants it back and doesn't want the doesn't want any of its resources to leave and it's almost sort of like psychically or whatever holding them in place, like, that really works well. It's just when they turn Sorensen into a monster and make him the focus that it sort of falls apart a bit at the end. Um, definitely, it's a shame to see that the actors 
gone downhill because I, um, when I checked the casting and I remembered where I recognised him from, he did a really great job as Jano in The Savages back in Hartnell's time. But, yeah, here he uh, definitely, the acting has gone downhill a bit. But, um, yeah, I, other things I like were um, the the bit where they jettison the body into space and they have the line about, oh, what religion was he? And then, oh, yeah, we have to play the clip of the last rites, but we don't actually have to listen to them. And it's a brilliant little dark moment, like setting up this alien culture and sort of having, you know, oh, we have to do, we have to formally do this stuff for the religion, but we're not actually going to listen to it. And just a little bit of a dark thing that they don't even care about their dead comrade. Um, and But also with the uh, jettisoning body, the cliffhanger to episode three, yeah, it's really dark seeing the Doctor and Sarah are about to get pushed out in space, but the reprise sort of pops out a bit with them. They sort of get pushed out. And in the time it takes before the conflict goes on inside and they draw them back in, like, they should be gone by then. Like the cliffhanger reprise, they didn't really do a good job of actually reprising it, unfortunately. But um, yeah, despite that, I really enjoyed the story. The only other fault I could find was a funny little mistake when um, the Doctor and Sarah are trapped in one of the rooms on the ship. I forget which one. They um, they have this line about, oh, we can't get out because the wi- the windows are magnetically sealed. And then the Doctor goes over. I forget how he gets it open in the end, but he goes over to it to see what he can do and it's already open a crack. It's open like an inch. Like it's magnetically sealed and they didn't even bother to do that right. So, yeah, little faults like that really get on my nerves. So that was a bit of a shame. But, yeah, as I say, I still enjoyed the story and I think the execution towards the end with Sorensen was a bit poor. But before that and other than that, I think, yeah, I enjoyed it. It's a good story in my opinion. I think maybe part of my problem with it is that there's so much potential there and it's got so much going in its favour that it just feels like it wastes a lot of opportunity. It's also slap bang in the middle of, as I keep saying, some of the strongest Doctor Who there's ever been. Um, it's it, it's a real come down after doing season 12 and Zygons and then you go to this and then it picks up again with the rest of the season. It, it just... Yeah, I don't know. I just I, I've I've tried to get on with it, and I have found things to enjoy in it. You know, there's there's a good guest cast there, um, as you touched on. You know, it's we've got Michael Wisher in what feels like his seventh hundred seven hundredth role in the last three series, and yeah, the, the the there's a lot to like there. There's a lot that could come together to make this a great story, but it's just. It seems like it's missing an awful lot for me, and it just it just falls flat, and it just comes across as a bit dull, unfortunately. Um, but uh, we'll we'll leave that there, and we'll we'll move on. Um, oh, one one thing worth pointing out: Planet of Evil. It's the final appearance of Tom Baker's original Doctor costume. The uh, the original costume is gone now. Um, didn't last long. Okay, we'll move on. And we will move on to uh, Pyramids of Mars, which is, I think it's one hell of an achievement, this story. I think it it really does sort of get the horror thing down to an absolute T. It's just, it's it's excellent. It starts excellent. I love that start, which is um, Scarman first opening the pyramid and you know, decrying the locals as superstitious fools and doing it himself and all that kind of thing. 
it's a really strong start. It reminds me an awful lot of uh, the beginning of The Exorcist, which, you know, they were going, I'm assuming they were going for something similar. Um, yeah, it, it's it's just a great way to get going. And it's so atmospheric. And I absolutely love uh, the stuff that's particularly in episodes two and three, where the Doctor and Sarah have basically just been hunted through woodland, but it's done so well. Uh, so effectively and really is entertaining um so jimmy you said it was your favorite so you talk to us first about pyramids of mars um well the first thing i'll follow on from what you said at the end of the last story about tom's costume changing i absolutely love the brown coat costume they introduced here and i sometimes forget when i haven't watched in a while which costumes are in which story so it was such a disappointment when they give him his best costume here and then for the rest of the season we get the gray which is I think it doesn't suit him. I think it doesn't really work. I don't like the grey costume. But anyway, moving on from the costume, I love this story. It's just such an atmospheric story and, like you said, particularly with the opening and in the tomb, but um, also the sort of throwbacks you get occasionally, like um, the Vicky and Victoria, the Doctor mixing up the names, but the costume supposedly being Victoria's from back in the day. Um, also, yeah, wonderful creeping creepy ending to the first episode with Ibrahim's death and the whole I bring Sutik's gift of death and yeah just such a dark little ending for the first episode and I love the atmosphere of like Lawrence creating the radio telescope thing and the doctor knows it's too advanced and also a sweet touch that sort of sets up for later Lawrence naming it the Marconi scope like he's named it after Marcus he's named it after his brother not himself and that sort of sets up the way that he keeps trying to save his brother and thinking he might still be alive when he isn't. Um, I also like the Doctor's delight at Lawrence's enthusiasm about the TARDIS and the the scene in the alternate 1980s, you want to get off here to Sarah and the world is just desolate and destroyed. It's just such a brilliant, brilliant thing to do rather than just say, no, we can't leave, we've got to save the Earth. It's like, okay, I'll show you how bad things will go if we don't do this. Like, it's such a different way to deal with that sort of issue and I think it worked really well. Um, yeah, another one, the um, – sorry, hang on, I've lost my place in my notes. Um, oh, yeah, um, I also love the sort of visual gag when they're on the actual pyramid in Mars and the Doctor and Sarah walk out, see the mummy turn around and walk straight back out again. That's a lovely little bit of funny visual acting. It sort of reminds me a bit of how Troughton and – Fraser Hines would do things like the hand-holding scene in um, Tomb of the Cybermen. And so it's nice to see that sort of dynamic between a doctor and companion or rather their actors again. Um, a few other things I will say that the minor sort of faults with it are things like Sarah, she can suddenly, she's a sharp shooter with a gun, which brilliant. Like that makes sense. Sure. Unit must have trained her or whatever. But at the same time, you have her throwing the dynamite, the gelignite around about thinking and the doctor criticising her for it. So it's like, well, is she meant to be good at this or not? Like, it's a bit mixed bag. It just feels like something's inconsistent there. Um, and another one that I've got to criticise is the mummies are a great idea to have these robots dressed as mummies, but the, the bit where they kill the poacher and it's like the two mummies are squishing in between their tits. It, it looks ridiculous and it's one of the few negatives that sort of takes away from the story a bit. But, um, yeah, another one at the end, the cushion hand, of course, is a funny little thing. And But one sort of um, 
thing they did that seemed like it was going to feel like that and feel like it was something wrong was when they get to the puzzles in the Pyramid of Mars and I was just thinking as I watched it and I'd completely forgotten there was a line about this, oh, it's just a redo of the Temple of Exelon and then Sarah basically says the same thing. So, you know, at least they had fun with it and lampshaded it, which, yeah, I liked I liked that little touch. Um, but, yeah, um, the only other fault I can find for is, is something that comes later. I love the performance of um, Gabriel Wolfer's Sutek and the, the brilliant lines about, oh, it's all your names, set Satan, Sados, whatever. And then it just makes me think when he came back in a new series and he actually played Satan, it's such a pity they didn't just bring back Sutek. I mean, his story was so good and they already had the line about Sutek and Satan being the same thing. So, yeah, but that's a disappointment for the future. But, yeah, I love this story. It's just so brilliantly dark and atmospheric and even all those little quibbles can't really take away from it. It's definitely the best of the season for me, as I said. I've always uh, sort of dismissed the hand and the cushion as, well, if I was an all-powerful god, I probably would just conjure a hand up to adjust my cushion for me to make me more comfortable. That's that's how I've always passed that one off. Um, you're right about the sort of fourth episode. It does all go a bit Exelon City, and it has to be said, I don't think the fourth episode is as good as the first three. I think it kind of sacrifices a lot of all of the brilliance that's going on for a rehash of Death to the Daleks. And it's, it's a bit of a shame that the sort of the, it's an ending that just doesn't quite stick the landing. Uh, it's still very good. You know, it, it's still very enjoyable stuff, but um, yeah, the lack of look at that decorative bit of floor cliffhanger and the fact that we are just sort of traipsing through ground we've already covered here. It, it's, yeah, it, it just sort of it deflates a bit in that final episode, but it's like I say, still an absolutely fantastic production. It is, it's very, very good, Doctor Who. Uh, Greg, what do you think of it? It was very hard not to call this my favorite episode of the season because, in addition to being an excellent Doctor Who story, it is also the first Doctor Who story I ever saw when I was about five years old, and it was utterly terrifying to five-year-old me like one of the scariest things i had ever seen in my young life like those mummies i bought that completely those are evil robots when they when they squish the guy i as as objectively ridiculous as that is looking at it now i was like oh that has to be the most horrible way to die like i I thought this was like the best thing I'd ever seen and that it's why I fell in love with Doctor Who and I I love this story. It's it's really really good. I mean you you guys have pretty much touched on all of it. Um the atmosphere of it is is just fantastic. Like one of the the things about this season is that so many of the best stories are characterized by just a constant set of threat to the characters like terror of the zygons has the seeds of doom has this especially and then here as you say we spend two episodes really not advancing the plot very much but just with the doctor and sarah and lawrence and the poacher and all the other characters you know just being hunted in one way or another and unlike in planet of evil which just seems to be treading water until it can kill the next person like here 
you really have this this oppressive sense of, of not knowing who's going to be next, but knowing that someone is going to be next. And yeah, you know, they're not going to kill the doctor or kill Sarah, but even so, like, there's a sense of threat here that has rarely existed in the classic series up until this point. I do agree that it falls down in episode four. Um, I, I think the whole wandering through the puzzle room is just kind of weird. And I've always, you know, liked the which of the two, what question do you ask the two guards puzzle largely because I saw it here when I was five and I thought it was the most, you know, brilliant brain twister, but it's really the, the end. I mean, apart from the, the, the padded out roam through the puzzle rooms, the ending just doesn't really sit right with me. Like the entire point of them going there is to stop Sutek from destroying the Eye of Horus. Like, that is what Sutek has been trying to do for hundreds of years. That's what will free him and allow him to destroy the universe. That's the thing that the Doctor absolutely has to stop. And they fail. He gets there first, and he destroys the Eye of Horus. And, like, this has been set up as, like, his triumphant moment. And then just out of nowhere, the Doctor says, like, wait, the time factor... And then runs to the TARDIS and is able to like beat him to earth and seal him in the thing. That's like, what, what, what were we worried about then? Like, I don't, I don't understand. Like, I, I don't think it's it's good writing to like set something up as this ultimate threat. Like, have the villain follow through on it, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, have the hero realize that oh wait, there's another way to win that I haven't mentioned before. That just doesn't feel rewarding to me, and that that to me is what keeps this story from being the best of the best and the best of this season. But I mean, it's still an all-time classic. Tom Baker is absolutely fantastic in this. Marcus Scarman, I mean, it's such a grim image. This guy is is dead. It's a walking corpse, and the performance and the makeup are just fantastic. Like, yeah, I mean, you can say Lawrence seems, doesn't seem to really figure out what's going on with his brother, but he has such a close attachment to his brother that... Um, you can understand why he's reacting the way that he is. And of course, Sutek is just one of the great Doctor Who villains. And, and what a what a compliment to the vocal performance that you can say that about a character who literally doesn't stand up from a chair until into the fourth episode of the serial. It's it's really good. It's one of my favorites. And yeah, it, it's it's what it's what turned me on to Doctor Who. So I can't complain at all. You see, there's there's quite little nostalgia with this one for me because it was actually one of the last classic stories, uh, certainly one of the last Tom Baker stories that I saw. Um, and I'd, I'd been through an awful lot by that point. I think I was basically missing this and Underworld, maybe the power of Kroll as well, something like that. Oh, save the best for last. Oh, well. <laughs> um, and... Uh, I, I just watched it and thought, flipping heck, I've been missing this. This is just absolutely brilliant. And I, I ended up not seeing this until a bit later on and had seen all the other Toms beforehand. But yeah, absolutely great story. Like you say, that bit at the end, it just, that last episode just let it down a bit for me. Um, you know, when you think about it, the Doctor and Sarah never actually needed to go to Mars in the first place. We could have just skipped all of the puzzles and, yeah anyway never mind for me the thing with that that you've both mentioned with the ending i actually kind of liked that they used the time zone 
time difference between Mars and Earth, and it felt like a throwback to the early days of Doctor Who. The Hartnell era, like we're teaching a bit of science and like teaching, you know, time differential and you know how how long a radio signal takes to get from Mars to Earth. I I mean, it, it's a bit silly and it doesn't fit with the sort of the show as it is by this point, but it sort of feels like a nice throwback to me. So I sort of give it a bit of slack for that. Maybe I would be more forgiving of it, actually, if it was written by, I don't know, let's say David Whittaker instead of Robert Holmes. Um, yeah, I, I kind of get what you mean there. Yeah. Um, shall we move on to the android invasion? It actually is the android invasion this time. Um, so android invasion, as I said at the start, is my favorite from this series, this season. It's it's definitely the underdog. There's definitely bits of it that just aren't quite right. And I mean, it, it, I kind of like this for the same reason that I like um, Revenge of the Cybermen so much. We're talking about when we did series 12, season 12. I've got to stop saying series. Um, it, was, it was one of the first ones that I saw and I just thought it was great. And it is absolutely bonkers and there are bits that don't make sense, but... There are some really, really good sequences in this. Some very good cliffhangers, you know, Sarah Jane's face falling off and she's an android shock horror. Um, but the, the, there's just some absolutely brilliant moments. You know, there's, there's chases through villages and woodlands and it just feels like very, very, very solid, very good Doctor Who. What Doctor Who should be. Um, you know, we're not running up and down corridors. We're, we're running through woodland, which is definitely something that you can sort of characterise seasons 12, 13 and 14 and 11 actually as well with there's there's, there's some good on-location chase sequences. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's a lot of fun. The androids are an interesting idea. We get an evil Benton, we get an evil Harry, we get an evil Doctor. Um, I quite like the sort of space-suited androids as well with the, the shooty fingers. Uh, the opening is incredibly strong. It's a unit soldier chucking himself off a cliff. Um, you know, Terry Nation, I mean, I think we can all agree that Terry Nation definitely had his faults, but one thing he did exceptionally well was first episodes. He wrote a damn good opening episode, and this is perhaps his best. It's just layers and layers and layers of mystery built on top of each other, and I just think it works so well. It's another one that's maybe let down a little bit by its final episode, um, but I quite like the switch to Earth. I actually think this could probably have worked as a six-parter with four episodes on a side and then two episodes on Earth at the end. The wrapping up does feel a little bit quick and we don't get a proper goodbye to Harry, even though it's his last story. Um, and actually, Sergeant Benton, the last we see of him, he is unconscious on the ground he could even be dead that it was kind of never actually confirmed by tv doctor who whether benton survived this story or not we just see him getting clouted and ended up on the floor um so yeah it's a lot of fun the the duplicates thing you know we mentioned that zygons was the first time it was done well here it is done for a second time in uh in four stories so, um, yeah, the Android Invasion, Greg, what do you think? I agree with a lot of what you said there. You know, I, I know this story has a, a terrible reputation, but I think there's a lot of fun to be had here. 
as you say, it's very Terry Nation. At the, at the same time, when you have that fantastic first episode, you also have things like, you know, the doctor asking Sarah if she wants the ginger beer and Sarah saying, oh, yes. And then, you know, oh, she said she hated it in episode one. And it's like, you know, he's writing that like, oh, this is a subtle clue. And you're just sitting there watching it like, yes, Terry, we get it. She's an android. But really, though, this this is fun. I, I like that it, it shifts position between, you know, different locations, even though, you know, it, it plays the trick of one is a planet or a place on a planet that looks exactly like Earth and the other one is Earth. But since it's relocating and since the people are behaving so differently, it does feel like two different places, which is good. But as you say, the location filming is is good. I like that the villain here... Stigron is not that great of a villain. Like the story is definitely kind of giving him some side eye. Just he's he's not that good at this, and I love that. I like the um, I like the use of the duplicates, and I think it's actually really effective at the end where the doctor goes into the actual space center and is, you know, trying to get everything set up and then comes to the realization that, you know, not only did they beat him there, but they've already replaced everyone in the space center and everyone he's been talking to and everyone he's been working with for the last five minutes is actually an Android. And this is all just them stringing him along. I love that revelation. That's really good. What I find interesting about this story too, is, you know, you talk about Harry reappearing this is, to my knowledge, apart from, if you want to say, the five Doctors, which is kind of its own special thing, this is the only time in the classic series where we pick up on what a companion is doing with their life after they leave the TARDIS. Um, and this is it's the only time. And we see it with Harry. And unfortunately, the story does absolutely nothing with that. Uh, most of the story, Harry is a duplicate. He is only his real self, like right at the end when he wakes up from being unconscious. And there's really no interaction between the Doctor or Sarah or real Harry at all. There's no goodbye scene. There's nothing. They just kind of cut it off and leave. And that that's very disappointing. But still, just having, you know, coming back to Earth and finding someone that used to travel in the TARDIS, that's that's just a tiny little modern feeling in what is otherwise still a pretty old-fashioned science fiction story. Um, I also agree it's kind of a, a damp ending for Benton, you know, John Levine, one of the most, you know, appealing and, you know, just genuinely, like, comforting, like, figures that's been on the show to just be kind of disposed of like that. I, I didn't, I don't really like that either. Granted, they had no idea at the time that none of these characters would ever come back again, but it's just, it's not a great ending. But, you know, overall, I enjoy this. Like, it's, it's fun to watch. It's silly. It's, it's got some interesting ideas. And, you know, really, what, when you're sitting down to watch Doctor Who, like, can you demand more than that? I don't know. There's an early 80s Christmas special with an absolutely cracking theme tune that has something to say about what you said about us not revisiting Classic Companion. But um, we, we, we will have to do K9 and Company at one point, actually, won't we? Is that season well, that, 18 that's, or that's 19? That's an episode of no, a different No, 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 series. hang on. We, we won't have to do K9 and Company. We'll have to do, 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 do,
That's the best joke that's ever been made on this podcast, <laughs> ever. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, uh, but, I defend myself. That is actually the pilot episode of a different series, technically. So, yes, fair enough. We, I, I'll allow you that one. Um, yes, indeed, we we don't get to revisit characters very often, um, and I kind of feel like this was a bit of a missed opportunity. And part of me wishes that actually Harry had just travelled with them. Um, he'd, he, you know, he'd, he could have been in Planet of Evil. He could have been in Pyramids of Mars, and then the bit where the TARDIS carries on to Earth and leaves them in this. Harry could still have been in the TARDIS, and he could have been taken to Earth, and it could have sort of been done that way, and then that would have been his. I don't know, something like that. But I kind of wish we'd got more Harry, um, which is something we're going to get onto shortly. But uh, yeah, it, it's. It, it's um, it definitely does sort of underserve Harry and Benton as characters. Both of them just don't get a fair crack of the whip in this, and it is a shame that it's the last last appearance. Uh, Jimmy, what are your thoughts on Android Invasion? Yeah, I, I like this one, but I definitely think it's there's not really much you can really say about it. Um, I think your point earlier about it could have done well stretched out six episodes is a good thing. Yeah, they could have definitely done that and done more of this story and it would have meant Seeds of Doom was shorter, so I would have been happy. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I like this one. I think the Krals themselves and their base and ship are pretty rubbishly realised for their time and not that well acted, but the androids, the idea of the androids being able to look exactly like you and that it, and, you know, the way they can be controlled, I think that was a cool concept and I think that's what the story should have done more with and had a bit less of the Krals and focused more on the duplicates because I think, all the duplicates, the actors did really well with them. Like the Doctor, Sarah, Harry and Benton, no matter how brief it was that the duplicates were involved and you, they did such a good job of playing these dark, evil versions of themselves and trying to hide it. And so I um, I really enjoyed that. Um, but, but, yeah, there's a lot of faults to find with the story, but as much as I do enjoy it, like um, the, um, first of all, Sarah, everyone talks about how in the five doctors she falls down the gentle slope and yet well, basically the same thing happens here. It might be a slightly less gentle slope, but it's still pretty pretty rubbish and yet five doctors get slated for it and no one ever mentions that it happens here as well. Um, and also Crayford being so gullible is like, you can see why maybe a sort of Stockholm Syndrome thing that he's sort of believing whatever the Krals tell him but the fact that he didn't even bother to take off his eye patch and actually, you know, see what had happened to his eye, it's just a bit, you know, stretches credulity. Um, and other than that, it's also a pity that the Brigadier couldn't return. Um, I think it would have been nice to have a double of him and see what that happened, but it was almost worth it for the um, the pun they make with naming the replacement Colonel Faraday, like Colonel Fort-a-Day, because he's filling in for the Brig. <laughs> um, but, yeah, um, I do enjoy the story despite all these faults. And so, um, yeah, I've got a lot of enjoyment for it and I think it's a, a good one. But um, And I especially like the bit where the Doctor and Sarah are trying to go back down to Earth and survive in the pod for the re-entry being so fast. And Sarah has the line about, oh, so if we don't die this way or this way or this way or this way, then everything will be fine. And Doc's like, Oh yeah, my one tiny flaw with my plan. I I just love that scene. I think it's a brilliant one. And so 
yeah, I enjoy this story. It may not be great, but it's got enough to keep me going personally. And yeah, I I thought it was worthwhile. I mean, that's one of many sort of fantastic moments that just show the Doctor and Sarah's friendship in this season. Um, and we are getting a lot more of that now. And Harry not being around kind of gives us a bit of room for that as well uh, for most of the season anyway. But um, we kind of have sacrificed some of the initial Sarah Jane character for that. Um, and in some ways, that's a shame. In other ways, you know, it, it is great that we have a Doctor and a companion that are just such good friends and they do have those sort of great little comedic, I guess, moments together. Um, just sort of talking about uh, Colonel Faraday. So as I mentioned, I saw this story when I was very young and I think the very first time I saw it, Colonel Faraday looks so similar to the Brigadier. That was like, but that is the Brigadier. Why is everyone saying it's not the Brigadier? It just didn't register at all that it was a completely different actor and character. And I thought it was something weird with all the androids going on. But no, it, it is indeed a different actor and a ca- character. But they they really are playing up to the British military stereotype here. I thought he kind of looked a little like Stephen Fry watching at this time, but I don't know. It, it that right? That's what we need. Stephen Fry as as the Brigadier's replacement. Come on, big finish. We can do that. Um. So before we move on entirely, um, we we we've said, or as we've mentioned, we've not said goodbye to Harry Sullivan. He's just been uh, kind of dumped at the end of this adventure, never to be talked of again, and that is a shame. Um. I quite liked Harry. I think Harry's a really, really good character. I think he's a a fun companion, but unfortunately, there's no doubt about it, he is entirely surplus to uh, requirements. Uh, They didn't cast an older Doctor. They didn't need the younger Ian Chesterton-type action man character, and as a result, we've just... We did have this sort of extra character that just kind of followed the Doctor and Sarah around a bit. Um you know, he was sidelined in this story. He was sidelined a bit in Zygons as well. He gets shot and he's out for a fair chunk of it. And then he gets uh, duplicated by the Zygons and he's out for another fair chunk of it. Um, yeah, it's just sort of a shame, really, that such a great character and such a great actor were a little bit underserved by the series. And I, I do enjoy what there is. And I'm glad that Harry's now got a second life at Big Finish. But yeah, I, I feel as though Harry was maybe a, a missed opportunity, but I think that opportunity was missed because they just didn't really need him. So is there anything you want to sort of add about Harry Sullivan, Greg? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's a lot to say about him, unfortunately. You know, I, I, I think Ian Martyr was a really appealing actor. I think that the character was written to be quite appealing. I mean, he's kind of this very well-meaning, old-fashioned, but a bit, you know, bumbling sort of guy. And, and that's always, that's a really nice, like, character archetype to have around. He had a great little relationship with Sarah. Um, the, the doctor never really seemed to take him seriously, which is an interesting choice. The, um, the Harry Sullivan as an imbecile scene is delightful. But, um, yeah, unfortunately, there's just not much to say. I mean, they, they didn't do much with the character at all. Like, there's no, 
there's absolutely no development. It's just, he's just kind of there and then he just kind of leaves. And it's a shame because I, I think with this actor and with this concept, if you'd actually been able to sit down from day one and structure these stories properly to incorporate him with Tom Baker's doctor, it could have worked better. But as we know, they thought they were going to cast an older actor as the doctor. And so they brought Ian Martyr in to be the William Russell of the seventies and do all the, you know, action and fight sequences. And then, then they cast Tom Baker and he could do all of that himself. And then Ian Martyr didn't have anything to do. So it's a shame, but I've always liked Terry as a character and I'm sad to see him go. And uh, what about you, Jimmy? Yeah, I think Ian Martyr's definitely a great actor and he did really well with limited material. I actually see a bit of a parallel to him and Ben in the second Doctor's era because same thing, Ben was created to sort of be the action man assistant for, you know, Hartnell's Doctor and then you get Hartnell's Doctor turning into Troughton who doesn't need that and then Jamie coming in who can fill that role better and be more popular. And so, yeah, I definitely see a lot of parallels between Ben and... Harry and they're both even Navy characters they've got that in common and yeah I think they're both brilliant actors who were very underrated and did a great job with material that was perhaps a bit limited for them at times and so I I in past I might not have liked or appreciated Harry as much as I do now but having gone through stories in order here for the podcast I um I think I, I appreciate him a bit more than I used to so yeah I think he's a good character I almost wish that he had come back later because I, I seem to remember reading that before they settled on putting the Brigadier instead of Ian in Mordron Undead, I seem to remember reading somewhere that before, after Ian fell through but before they picked the Brig, they considered bringing Harry back and I think that would have been wonderful. So it's a shame it didn't actually happen. But, yeah, I like the character and it's a shame to see him gone. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that there was... There was definitely more potential with Harry, but they just they didn't need him at this stage, and as a result, he didn't get the best material. And but yeah, I, you know, whenever I do do a marathon, whenever I do work through these stories in order, I definitely miss him when he's gone. And I think because that happens twice, you sort of lose him at the end of Zygons, and then lose him again at the end of uh, at the end of Android Invasion. And yeah, that's it. It does feel like something's missing, and as excellent as the Doctor and Sarah are, it's it's kind of a shame that the third wheel isn't around. Um, but we'll move on. We'll move on without Harry, and we'll move on to The Brain of Morbius, which is um, quite rare for this point in Doctor Who. It's a studio-bound story. Um, there, there really aren't many of those left now. Um, it's it's an interesting one. It's uh digs into Time Lord mythology a bit. It's got an excellent villain in the form of Solon, but I think it does have its faults. I think it does drag on a little bit. The the whole sequence of uh, Sarah being blinded just kind of doesn't really go anywhere. And the Morbius costume itself looks pretty dreadful. Um I'm also not a huge fan of the sisterhood scenes. They kind of drag on a little bit as well. Uh, But certainly not to put a downer on it. This isn't a bad story. This isn't a story I dislike. There are just things about it that kind of stand out as just the sort of stuff that puts me off a little bit. Um, But it's, it's a great story for Tom Baker again, but I think we could say that about pretty much everything, uh, with the exception perhaps of Planet of Evil that we've done so far. 
Um, so yeah, Greg, I'll pass it over to you. Where do you stand on the brain of Morbius? I like the brain of Morbius a lot. I I think it's it's interesting that it's around this time of the show that they really start to dig into Time Lord lore and Gallifrey and history a little bit. And you can definitely see it here. I love the doctor right at the beginning, just petulantly sitting down and refusing to do anything because he knows he's been sent here on an errand, even if there's no one waiting to meet him or any kind of briefing or anything like that. And of course he's eventually drawn into the story, but I, I, I do that, that continues kind of the theme with this doctor of not wanting to be tied down to one place or to have to answer to anybody. Um, you know, Pertwee's doctor was never as irate about being sent places as, as Tom Baker seems to be. I think the sisterhood is very effective. I do agree that, you know, some of the scenes are not paced the best, but I think the sound design with the chanting is excellent. I, I think just the idea of this, like, race of mythical witches basically and yet having such a direct connection to the time lords is, is deeply fascinating i love the combination of science and magic with the elixir of life where you know the doctor knows how the elixir is created he knows the process that's causing the gas and the flame to come you know up at that point but at the same time, he has absolutely no idea like what actually makes up the elixir and says if he had a spectrograph, maybe you could figure it out, but you know, who knows? And and I, I think that's a, a great way to, you know, balance the very science-oriented philosophy of Doctor Who with this much more mystical portrayal. Yeah, and 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 and, and then you get to Sullen, who is a fantastic character in his own right. I mean, he's very much the mad scientist in every respect. They're very much doing the Dr. Frankenstein thing down to Kondo being his Igor. And they're, and then he's eventually slowly pushed aside for the true villain of the piece, who is Morbius, who is, you know, an ancient Time Lord war criminal, basically. And and that is just such a... a, a a fascinating, you know, portrayal of a villain. And, you know, the, the, the moment where, when he's completely in, in the, when he's in the, the monstrous body, but he is completely in his right mind and he's able to interact with the doctor. Like you really get the sense of, you know, these are two, you know, great minds actually, even before they do the, the, the mind battle thing, you know, you really get the sense of like, Oh, this is, you know, this is a clash of Titans here. There's a couple interesting things about it, too, like when the Doctor and Sarah are trapped in the basement, the solution is let's make cyanide gas kill everybody. <laughs> like, really? Wow. Like, you know, this, this, the show gets kind of brutal in places in this uh, era, and that is definitely an example of that. Um, Kondo, you know, is rather gruesomely shot, like, I'm... I know there were a lot of complaints very famously at the time about how dark and violent Doctor Who had gotten, but my goodness, that's a gory scene. Like, I don't, I don't know that you've ever seen anything like that elsewhere in the show. Um, they're, so they're really pushing the boundaries of what they can get away with. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it drags a little bit. There's definitely some capture escape going on here, but 
I think the atmosphere of it is just so good and the performances are just so good across the board that it really makes up for it. Like this is probably my third favorite of the season, but it would be my most favorite of a lot of other seasons. I think that's a very good point, actually. A lot of what we're discussing here would easily be the best story in its season if it was in a different season. Um, yeah, it, it's it's all good stuff. Uh, Jimmy, what are your thoughts on The Brain of Morbius? Well, for me, it's interesting that I enjoyed the story, but most of my notes, there wasn't really much to say about the story and its faults or connections with other stories. I mean, I did enjoy the story, but I think the biggest fault with it is the Frankenstein sort of body for Morbius makes sense at the start when that's all the parts that someone had to work from. But then the doctor comes along and he's like, oh, your head's perfect and you're a time lord. I mean, it's even going to be so compatible. And you just think, well, why are you even still bothering keeping the Frankenstein body? Why aren't you just wanting to put Morbius's brain in the doctor's head and use the doctor's whole body? I mean, it's compatible and it's objectively more useful and better than the Frankenstein you've created. So... It's just a silly little plot hole, but it sort of ruins the central point of the story. Um, the other thing that sort of uh, I felt was a bit weird with the plot was that after the Doctor sets the flame going back to full blast and he's repaired the way for the um, sisters to get their elixir, and yet the next scene is like they've got him tied up and they're sending him to Solon anyway. Like, Why? What's happening there? Like, Marin is just like, oh, okay, you've saved us. You've you've given us our magical elixir that keeps us alive. Thanks so much. I'm going to throw you to Solon, who I know is an evil creep and doing unethical experiments. It just, like, it didn't really make sense for the character. There was nothing to really foreshadow that she'd do that, or I think it was a bit poorly handled. Um, and then you've also got... Uh, the thing with the story is that, as I said, it's the connections to other stories that sort of make it interesting, like the bringing back the mutt from the mutants. And I felt it was a good little cameo, but I felt it a bit odd that they're still calling it a mutt rather than, you know, by this stage, the mutants has happened. The doctor knows it's what the Solonians are meant to be. And, you know, they've apparently got this civilization with spaceships, but he's still just calling them mutts. Just seems a bit weird. And the other one is the mention from the sisters about the Hutai and their silent gas dirigibles. And, like, we all know that became the basis for love and war. And it's just interesting to think, you know, if they made up a different name or a different description for the ship, that entire story could have been different and we might have got some other companion instead of Benny. It's just weird to think of little connections like that and how such a tiny little thing in this story can spiral out into the extended universe of Doctor Who. Um yeah, um, the last episode for the story is things sort of go downhill a bit quality-wise, but I really enjoyed the story, despite all these bad things I'm saying about it. Like, I can't think of many positives to say, but I I did enjoy it. The, um, the only other things I do have to say is, of course, the line that Tom had about having had several heads and then the Morbius faces. It's interesting the way they did that. Like, they obviously were intended at the time to be the Doctor's faces before... Um, Chibnall did what he did with it. I've always thought, no, that's stupid. It doesn't make sense. I'm going to say they're Morbiuses. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, with that scene, I like how Sarah said about liking his last face and that. But um, the several bit throws me because, like, it, it makes you think, so at Tom's life, he knows about the pre-Hartnell incarnations. And so 
it goes weird when you put it with the sort of modern series thing about the timeless child. Like, does Tom know about the timeless child? Does he know about his past lives? And of course, they can't do anything with it because it hadn't happened yet. But it just makes things confusing and makes that plot point in the new series feel all weird. So. Yeah, but as I say, um, that's that's a fault of later era. It's not something with brain itself. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> I really feel bad that I sound like I'm trashing the story because I did enjoy it. But yeah, there are a lot of faults and weird things and there's not really much you can say about the positive side. So yeah, that's it. You've beaten me to it. I was going to do a joke about, and of course it started the Timeless Child storyline, which still hasn't been resolved. Um, but we'll we'll leave that there. Um, yeah, it's. I'm kind of in the same boat as you. I, I really enjoy The Brain of Morbius. It's a very good story, but I I struggle to go, oh, yeah, this is brilliant, and that's brilliant, and that's my favourite bit, whereas I can easily pick out the bits of it that I don't like, but it, it doesn't mean it's a bad story at all. I guess it just means it gets on with its job of being a Doctor Who story and keeps us entertained for the best part of 100 minutes. Um. So we'll we'll head into the series finale now, which season finale, I'm doing it again. Uh, the Seeds of Doom, it's it's this mad big epic story with a I would say a fairly unique villain, but it's it's definitely ripping off um things that have come before, such as Quatermass or uh, there's an Avengers story as well. I think it's called Man Eater of Surrey Green something like that which does exactly this but 10 years earlier um it it's 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 not the most original story on the bbc but it's it's great and it's really strong it's got an exceptional guest cast it's got arguably the best guest performance of the classic series um in in the in, in the form of uh, tony beckley's harrison chase fantastic villain uh, Scorby's great as well. Uh, John Chalice would obviously go on to be in Only Fools and Horses and uh, indeed, you know, one of the greatest known faces on British TV. Um, and he's he's just brilliant as Scorby. He, he's genuinely hateful. He's a proper nasty piece of work. And you don't actually get that many evil henchmen that are genuinely that bloody horrible in Doctor Who. So I really, really like that. It's a great performance and it's he gets such a brilliant ending as well you know he, he he finally sort of snaps tries to escape and just gets consumed by the plant um yeah there's an awful lot going on in this story um it, it's it's interestingly formatted it's formatted the way that i wish more six six parters were it's basically a two part story and a four part story stuck together um and i i think it works really well Definitely has its flaws. You know, the early stage crinoids just being an axon that's been painted green does sort of look a little bit shaky. Um, again, there are just some moments of it not looking great and that kind of thing. But it doesn't matter because what's going on is so brilliant. It's very action heavy. Um, the Doctor gets very, very violent in this one, like more violent than we've ever seen him before. And it's there aren't as many times there aren't that many times we'll see him be this violent again but i i think it works and i think it kind of adds to the sense of desperation you know we've got to stop this crinoid pod from hatching and germinating and i think 
a bit of desperation in the doctor is definitely a good thing, builds up a bit of tension. So you said it was your favourite of the run, Greg, so talk to us about the Seeds of Doom. Well, I'll pick up right from what you were saying there. What works so well for me is the intensity of this story because I mean, this is this is the most intense performance Tom Baker gives in the classic series. I mean, yes, there are definitely moments of levity, but you know, the like just think about the scene near the end where, you know, the the crinoid makes its ridiculous offer to, you know, spare everyone else if they give him the doctor and the doctor is, you know, Scorby's considering it and the doctor is just screaming at him like it won't make any difference like it's incredibly jarring because you never see that kind of intensity from this character and you really pick up on that sense of desperation like that that what what defines this whole serial for me is just the constant like sense of threat Everything about the story is designed to unsettle you. It's designed to make you feel like something terrible is going to happen at any moment. The sound design in this story is absolutely fantastic. Just this almost wall of sound sort of strategy that just builds and builds and just makes everything feel uncomfortable. The doctor being so intense, so convinced that if we don't stop this problem right now, everyone is going to die. It works so well. Yes, the crinoid itself looks a little ridiculous. Yes, it's obviously a thing that's been keyed over a model of a house at the end. But, like, that's Doctor Who, you know? I mean, I I don't... It's very difficult to find a classic story that doesn't have some sort of visual effects snafu in one way or another. But, man, like like you said, too, the, the splitting the story two episodes in Antarctica and then four episodes back in England, like the two episodes in Antarctica really work just on their own as this, you know, claustrophobic sort of thing. Um, I know it was inspired by Quatermass and, and other things, you know, from British TV at the time, but, you know, we talked about how the Ark in Space influenced uh, Alien going forward. I mean, watching this, and again, probably no actual relationship, but man, like this really brings to mind John Carpenter's The Thing. And I know that in itself was a remake of a movie from the 50s, but stylistically, like the, the appearance and the way that the story develops in Antarctica is very similar to what Carpenter would do, you know, not too many years later. I think in terms of the acting, like you said, it's it's just amazing uh chase is one of the best villains the show's ever had he's just completely out of his mind like he starts that way and somehow gets even worse as the story goes on and i mean it's it's a bit cliched i suppose but it's honestly shocking like how basically he's managed to find the most like conscious or conscienceless sadistic people in the world all to work for him like Keeler's the only one that seems to have any humanity. Like even his butler, who doesn't do anything to anyone, just is watching all of this happen and watching his clearly insane employer and is like, ah, Mr. Chase probably knows what he's doing. It's like, what? What are you talking about? No, he doesn't. Um, like it's 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 a grim story, like taking Keeler and who's like the only sympathy, even remotely sympathetic character associated with Chase. So of course he's the one that gets turned into the crinoid. And as he's transforming, he's just angry and lashing out at everyone. Like it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. And I mean, yeah, Tom Baker, like this is an absolute tour de force performance. Again, I I mentioned at the beginning, 
I'm not sure that Robert Bake Stewart really understands Doctor Who. Like, this feels more almost like the Avengers almost, but at the same time, like, it's, it just, for this particular story, it works so well. Like, I mean, come on, the Doctor jumping through a skylight, knocking out the henchman, grabbing the gun, and then what do you do for an encore Doctor? I win! Like, it's, it, 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 for some reason, like, it works here. Like, yeah, if he'd been acting like that in, you know, Pyramids of Mars, it would have been very unusual. But, like, here, just because the story turns the intensity up to 11, like, it really it really just lends to that sense of desperation. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple of, you know, issues, as there is with everything. You know, I, I think in episode three, like, the the chase with the guard is, is completely pointless. Like the doctor like knocks him to the ground and disarms him. And then he and Sarah run away and hide just so he can jump on the guard and attack him again. Like why not just knock him out when he's laying helpless on the ground in front of you? I don't know, but that's, that's really minor. I mean, any doctor who story is going to have some padding. This certainly does not have a reputation as a bad story or anything like that. Like people think it's good, but to me, this is an all-time classic of Doctor Who, and I'm always a little surprised when people talk about great episodes. And this is nowhere to be found. And I, I, I absolutely love it to death. I enjoyed. I was riveted by all six episodes. I would watch it again right now if I could. It's. It is an exceptionally, I mean, it's a very intense story, as you've said, and it's incredibly bleak as well. There's a lot of stuff that happens off screen that you just think, wow, that's that's horrible. Like you hear about people just being killed by the plants in the garden and that kind of thing. And just things that are going on in the background to really ramp things up. Um, one scene that's always really stuck with me as well is when Chase sort of knocks out the unit sergeant feeds him into the composter like what a grisly death that's got to be one of the nastiest deaths in all doctor who and i did read once that um somebody had suggested that maybe that had been intended for benton you know if if benton had been in this story surely he'd have been the one in the house with the doctor and sarah and therefore the one that got fed into the composter um which is a really bleak thought and not something I'd have put past Holmes and Hinchcliffe doing at this point, actually, just wiping out this character that had been in the series for more than half a decade at this point. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's truly brutal. Um, I do wish that we'd have got some of the... We'd have got a regular unit character in this. You know, would, would, would there have been room for Harry to have been in this or Benton or... You know, we know the Brigadier wasn't available. We know Nick Corney wasn't available. But it would have been great to just have a unit character because this this really, really is the last unit story now. This is the last appearance of unit for a long, long time. And, yeah, they go out with a whimper. Um, there are no regulars. It's just a few people in units, unit uniforms wandering about. And I think the one thing it needed would just have been one at least one unit regular um so jimmy it's it's not a favorite of yours then talk to us about that i mean it's not terrible or anything it's just it's good but this season is of such high quality that it's the least good of the lot it's um i think it drags on a bit it's too long at six parts the first two episodes could have easily been condensed into one and um 
yeah, I really didn't like the Antarctic part. It really felt slow and not that good, but things pick up a bit when they leave Antarctica. Um, yeah, I, I do have things I like about the story, and particularly I've got to give the Doctor's performances great, especially he screams a lot almost in this story, like when Scorby takes Sarah hostage and he's just screaming, Sarah! It's more emotion than Tom usually ever shows in any of his stories, and it's good to see him having that sort of stretch to his character that he doesn't normally get, and it happens a few times throughout the story, and it's always very good. But um, other than that, I mean, there's some really weird and stuff and lots of faults, I find. I mean, um, the random painting, they've got, they've been taken hostage and nearly killed in the middle of nowhere, but, oh, there's a random painting in the boot and we can trace the painting to its artist and then we can trace the artist to the, what's going on there? Like, why is he just throwing a random painting in the boot of the car that he's sent to assassinate his, the two people? It's, it's just so convenient and weird. And, I mean, the Ducar subplot is really just annoying. It's just, it doesn't add anything to the story. It's just, why is it even there? Um, the Doctor, another thing I like about his performance, though, is that bit where the chase is threatening to kill them and Sarah, and he says something to Sarah about, oh, well, it's a reasonable response and it's a pretty funny and dark line to put in there. Um, but, yeah, um, you've got stuff like um, the the bit where, where they're running around and trying to escape from Chase's manor and the bit where Scorby catches up and the Doctor grabs him by the head turns his head around full tilt, you hear a crack like he's broken Scorby's neck, and then about five or ten seconds later, Scorby gets up and is totally fine and well. Like, what the hell is going on there? I mean, if you're going to have the Doctor kill a guy, like, commit to it, and, I mean, they did the cracking sound, so you can assume he broke the guy's neck, and yet Scorby's up and fine and dandy in two seconds flat. What the hell is going on there? It makes no sense. It's like... They couldn't decide between doing the dark thing and having him actually kill him or doing the more normal Doctor Who thing and having him get away. And so they were just like, oh, well, we'll make it look like he killed him and then say he's fine two seconds later. That'll do. I mean, what the hell's going on there? And then you've got Chase talking in his very first scene about, oh, I hate bonsai because they cut the trees and how dare they cut the trees. And in his, in his gardens outside his base... He's got those pyramid-shaped trees that have been clearly trimmed into that shape. It, I mean, you'd think that not try to reference cutting trees being bad when they're having trees that look blatantly cut. Um, and then there's other little things like when the crinoid is attacking them in the um, house and Sarah gets this axe and is whacking at the crinoid's tendril with an axe. And if you actually look... The axe is facing backwards. She's whacking it with the the wooden hilt, and the you know actual part that cuts is facing away from the crinoid. I mean, I don't know why that scene was like that. Surely the directors must have noticed and been able to fix it. But no, she's just whacking the crinoid with essentially a bit of wood. <laughs> and yeah, it's so weird. And then the muse the music's terrible. Says the doctor as um, Chase is playing his horrible noises and it's pretty funny because this hideous electronic music i mean harrison chase dearly derbyshire you are not it's it's i don't know what they were going for with the weird electronic music because you wouldn't think that would be conductive to the plants or anything 
And then at the very end of the story, everything's all wrapped up and they have this stupid little scene of, oh, we've arrived back in, Tar in Antarctica. Ooh, is it before or after we were here before? Who cares? What the hell was the point of that? Yeah, I mean, it's not a terrible story by any stretch, but it's, you know, it's for me, it's pretty average at best. Maybe a smidge above average, but all those faults with it, usually I can overlook them, but there's just so many and some of them are so stupid that, no, nah, they drag me out of it. It just doesn't work for me, unfortunately. I do wonder, you know, if um, this would have worked better if they'd have done it's a bit of an RTD thing to do actually if they'd have had the two Antarctica episodes further in the like earlier in the season further back in the season then gone off and sort of done Morbius and then come back for the final four episodes instead of just having it as one six part that's kind of split into two maybe that would have just sort of eased things up a bit and you know let the Antarctica bit be something on its own i quite like the antarctica bit but i have to admit i do find myself sitting there watching it thinking i just want to get to chase's house now actually just want to jump forward an episode or two um so yeah maybe that's that's something to ponder anyway uh, but that is all we have time for it's it's been a long one uh, but we've had a lot of great doctor who to talk about uh, next time we do season by season, obviously we'll be back with season 14, which contains The Deadly Assassin, the greatest Doctor Who story there's ever been and ever will be, and that's not up for debate. Uh, but in the meantime, I will say thank you and goodbye to Greg. Thank you and goodbye. And I will say thank you and goodbye to Jimmy. Thanks. I'm looking forward to season 14. It's probably my favourite of Tom's, barring some huge re-evaluations as I do this marathon. Well, that's it. We're going to go through it and sort of discover that the key to time is the best thing ever or something like that, which, you know, it's very good. Um, but yes, we'll we'll move on to season 14 next time. But meanwhile, thank you very much for listening and we will be back for some more podcasting very soon. Goodbye now.